Christchurch, New Malden, 29th of September 2019, 11 o'clock service. Katie Loughman speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, God's Covenant Love Revealed. Well, we're continuing in our sermon series in the book of Romans, and this week it's uh, Romans chapter 3, the second half, about how the covenant reveals God's love. So in the second half of Romans, chapter 3, we're looking at what Paul has to say about God's covenant with his people. In the previous passage, Paul had been explaining how the law showed people what was the right thing to do. It showed them how to live a righteous life, which was their side of the bargain that formed the covenant with God. But we see throughout the Old Testament how God's people, who were, let's face it, just ordinary human beings, really, uh, they couldn't live up to their side of the bargain. They could never achieve the righteousness through the law because they were incapable of keeping the law and that broke their side of the covenant. In fact, God's people lived no better than the Gentiles, even though they should have known better because they had the law to guide them. And we've heard quite a lot about that in the last couple of weeks from David Taylor and also from Stephen. And I think that we know from our own experience, don't we, that what the Bible wants us to do, so often we don't manage to live up to it. So the law didn't make people righteous. On that count, it failed to hold people to God's covenant. And this put the whole covenant in jeopardy, as Stephen explained last week. But thankfully, God is more faithful than his people. And as a faithful and truthful God, he keeps his promises, even when those on the other side of the bargain don't keep theirs. So this week, in the second half of Romans chapter 3, we see God's plan to rescue the covenant and get his relationship with his people back on track. And the plan is this. Now, Paul says, there's a new way to become righteous. It's a righteousness that comes from God himself, not from the law. God can see that people can't become good on their own. So in his love, he finds a way to make them good if they choose to take it. Now, righteousness comes from faith in Jesus and it's freely available to anyone who believes in him, whatever their background is, whether they're part of the old covenant or not. So this is amazing grace, amazing love, that anyone can be made righteous by believing in Jesus. But why does that matter? Why is it so important that people are righteous? Well, because all through the Bible, God wants to have a relationship with his people because he loves them. And in return, he wants his people to glorify him by living according to the law and living a life that expresses God's love and God's own love expressed through his people points other people to him. That was his original covenant. But right from the start, evil and wrongdoing have spoilt that relationship. Humans are incapable of living a righteous life that glorifies God and expresses his love. So the covenant is mucked up. So how can God keep the covenant and put the relationship right? 
Well, to do that, the evil that gets in the way needs to be got rid of. Only then will humans be freed up to live a life free from evil and suffering and be close to God. Wouldn't it be nice if God could wave a magic wand and do away with all the evil in the world? Well, of course, he could do that, but he didn't. He chose not to. And the reason he didn't just destroy evil like that is because every single one of us has evil in our own hearts. So if God destroyed evil, we would all get destroyed too. So there would be no relationship and that would defeat the purpose. Paul says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of that purpose for our lives, the purpose of glorifying God by the way we live. And that applies to God's people as much as to anyone else, not just the baddies of this world. Paul says we're all bad. So humans, having failed to stick to the solution, God decides to provide a solution himself. I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I found it very difficult to keep my bedroom tidy. My mum used to tell me off for keeping it in such a mess, and she'd send me upstairs to tidy my room. But somehow it never seemed to work. My room was always a mess. <laughs> but then eventually she'd take pity on me and she'd come upstairs and she'd tidy my room herself. And I used to love that because everything was sorted out and it was so much better than I could do it myself. And my room was lovely and clean and tidy for a short while. And that's what it was like with God. His people just couldn't manage to keep the law. So God stepped in. And the solution he offered was totally in keeping with the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrifices of atonement were to obtain from God forgiveness for the sins of God's people in failing to keep his law. Leviticus chapter 16 describes how the sacrifices should be made for all the sin of God's people on the Day of Atonement. Aaron, the priest, sacrificed a bull for the priests and a goat for the people. Then he got just the blood and he took it into the Holy of Holies, the place of God's presence, where God meets with his people. And there he sprinkled the goat's blood onto the Ark of the Covenant and around the Holy of Holies. To the Jews, the blood of an animal represents the life of the animal, and the sacrificial animal represents the people dying in their place as a result of their sin. So when Aaron sprinkled the animal's blood, he was symbolically sprinkling the life of the people themselves, poured out and offered to God at the very place where God lived, in the Holy of Holies. The blood was purified by God's presence, as was the life of the people that it represented. The life of God and the life of the people came together, mingling to show the closeness of the covenant relationship. And through that atonement sacrifice and the act of sprinkling the blood, their past sins were forgiven rather than punished. The people were purified from evil, so they could start afresh living according to the law again, and the covenant was restored for another year. This was a cycle of failure, sacrifice, atonement, forgiveness, followed by a fresh start and repeated failure. 
and it went on throughout the Old Testament. But ultimately, it was unsustainable because of the people's constant failure to live up to the law, their inability to live righteously. They constantly turned away from the relationship with God that God so wanted to have with them. Evil kept getting in the way. The sacrifices made up for it, but Paul said that was only temporary. They have to be repeated every year. And there were stretches of Israel's history when they didn't even manage that. The covenant was getting ridiculous. A permanent solution needed to be found. And that's where God steps in, like my mum coming up to my bedroom. And Paul says in verse 21 that God has planned a solution. And in verse 25, God presents Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. God's only son, sacrificed. The way Paul describes this reminds me of our first reading in Genesis chapter 2, when Abraham was preparing to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Isaac says to him in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 22, Dad, we've got the wood, we've got the knife, but um, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God himself will provide. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? As Abraham is lifting the knife to sacrifice his boy, God stops him. And when he turns round, there's a ram right there, provided by God to take Isaac's place. Isaac is saved, but Abraham has proved his faith. And it's no coincidence that it's straight after that that God restates his covenant while Abraham's still there at that altar with the knife in his hand. Because Abraham had the faith to not withhold his only son, God will make his descendants as numerous as the stars, and through them the whole world will be blessed because of Abraham's faithful obedience to God. So here in Romans, we see God himself providing the sacrifice again. Jesus, God's only son, killed, and his blood shed in atonement for wrong so that the whole world can be blessed because of Jesus and because of Jesus' faithful obedience to God. The blessing, of course, is the restoration of that loving relationship with God. And Paul explains that atonement comes to God's people not through the sacrifice itself, but through people's faith in the blood of that sacrifice. Their faith in Jesus' lifeblood poured out right at the place where we expect evil to have the victory over life. Jesus' blood was poured out not in the Holy of Holies, at the place where God and his people meet. Instead, his blood is shed at the place where good and evil meet, the point of death. The cross was an instrument of Roman torture, where human oppression took human life on a regular basis, totally evil. It was where Jesus, who is totally good, was overcome and killed. So on the cross, total good met total evil. And it was right there that Jesus' blood was shed and sprinkled. And there, his sprinkled blood sprinkled over the evil of the cross, mingled with it and purified it. It purified the evil. 
just as the blood of the atonement sacrifice purified the people of evil of Israel and the evil that was in their sins that they'd committed. And when evil is purified, it becomes nothing. No longer evil. It's like stain remover, bleaching out a stain from a white cloth. Once the stain remover's done its work, the stain's transformed into pure white again, and it takes its place alongside the rest of the cloth. You've seen those before and after pictures. We don't have to cut off the stained bit and put it in the bin. Stain remover doesn't even wash the dirt out and send it somewhere else, like down the sink. Instead, the actual stain is bleached and restored to what it should be, and the whole cloth is usable again. And that's what happened to evil when the blood of Jesus' sacrifice was shed on the cross. Evil was bleached white, transformed and redeemed. And atonement comes, Paul says, when God's people put their faith in that. When we do that, all the evil in us is redeemed and turned to good by our faith in Jesus' sacrifice. Sacrificed on the cross for us. We're no longer stained by our wrongdoing. We're made righteous. And when that happens, our relationship with God is restored. And that's the new covenant, the New Testament, that great act of love. Jesus' death has got rid of evil, so it will no longer come between God and his people. The word atonement has been described as at one It enables us to be at one with God in that relationship with his people that God has been longing for since the creation of Adam and Eve. But Paul makes it very clear that that only happens to those who put their faith in Jesus' sacrifice. If we have no faith in Jesus' atonement, then it can't help us. How can we be atoned for and saved by something we don't believe in? If we have no faith in it, then we won't be looking for a relationship with God. And God respects that. He doesn't force himself on us. He wants us to love him freely. If we turn away from God, how can he save us? We remain riddled with evil and in no relationship with him. But he calls out to us all the time and it's never too late to turn to him because his covenant is eternal. It's always there for anyone, only a prayer away. As it said in the prayers that we had earlier this morning, the, the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. A prayer away. We know the price that God has paid to have a relationship with us. And that makes that relationship all the more special. Because of his amazing love and his amazing grace, we can accept the freedom that he offers. Freedom from the guilt of our wrongdoing. Freedom from the oppression of evil that we know is ultimately defeated. Incredible freedom from the fear of death. In response, we don't need to make burnt offerings. We don't need to keep a lot of arcane laws. What God asks of us in response is that we live a life in relationship with him. A life that reflects to other people the love that he's shown us. He asked the, the, he asked the Jews to live distinctively through the law. And he asks us to live distinctively through love.
that new commandment that we love one another as Jesus has loved us. And that way, people will know that we're his disciples. That's what marks us out as God's people. Later in Romans, Paul goes into what that might look like in practice. And in chapter 12, he describes our life as being a living sacrifice, our whole life, an act of worship, lived in a way that gives glory to God. And we remember all these things, don't we, when we take communion. We explicitly remember Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, and we offer our souls and bodies to him as a living sacrifice in return. We ask God to send us out to live and work to his praise and glory. So Paul rounds off this chapter 3 by pointing out that we have nothing to boast about. God's people, the Jews, failed to keep the law and broke the covenant. God's people, the church, equally have nothing to be proud of. We are only saved by the sacrifice of Jesus and the grace of God, not by anything that we've done. All we can do is have faith to accept it with an open heart, to take that forgiveness every time we do wrong and to offer our own lives to him in return. So let's go out into the world each day to live and work to his praise and glory by loving others as he loves us. And when we do that, the world will be blessed through his covenant. <laughs>